Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're really going to be in verses 10 through 13 today, but I need to back up one, one verse uh, to verse 9. I didn't quite finish that last week. Hope to find some help there before we continue on. I'm just going to go ahead and read this passage this morning, pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive back on in. So your Bibles again, Hebrews chapter 2. 9 through 13. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. I'm going to keep reading for context's sake. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Father, we ask for your word to do exactly what it was made to do, to pierce our hearts, to enlighten for us what is true. God, I know there are so many things this last week that have sought to distract us from you, And so I pray that right now you would help us center, that you would help us refocus our thinking on you. Lord, serve uh, serve us with this word, Lord, as you use it to do what it was made to do, to proclaim the excellencies of who you are and Jesus, that we may exalt in, exult in the death of Jesus on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, as I said, we got to the uh, halfway through, uh, verse 9. I wanted to just back up to make sure that we saw a really important part there before we jumped into verse 10, where we're supposed to be today. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death For everyone, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was because of God's grace that Jesus had to die. 
And the term that the author chose to use here was taste death. Now, I don't think that there's anything weird going on with this language of taste death. Jesus used that same language in Matthew 16 when he said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Quite simply, it means to experience death. To experience death. And he has experienced death for everyone. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now everyone, that word there, is qualified in this same chapter to tell us what everyone do you mean? Does this mean that all people will end up in heaven because Jesus' blood has washed away the sins of all the people, of everyone? Well, not quite. Everyone is qualified later, not only in the next verse, in verse 10, we're about to see the many sons, but it's also in verse 16 where it says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Our commitment to every word in the Bible means that we even let the Bible define the words that it uses. This is not every person who ever lives that Jesus' death is, is good for, but for every one of the offspring of Abraham, every one of the many sons in the next verse. While Jesus' death is sufficient for every person in the whole world, it is only effective for those who believe. Simply put, if you do not believe in Jesus, his death is of no eternal benefit to you. If you're a believer in Jesus today, Jesus has tasted death for you. This is why Paul includes in 1 Corinthians 11 that, that warning before a person takes communion. Make sure that you're in Christ and you discern the body. If you're not of Christ, don't take of this because by taking communion, it is saying Jesus has tasted death for me. Now having communion is a recollection of, a memory of Jesus' death on my behalf. That's why it's for those for whom he died. Jesus has tasted death for you if you believe in him today. Verse 10 continues. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting that he, that's the Father, he for whom and by whom all things exist. We saw in chapter 1, verse 2, that God is, that the Father is the one who created all things that exist through the Son, it says in chapter 1, verse 2, he's Using that same language here then again. The Father, for it was fitting that the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what does it mean, in bringing many sons to glory? This is the future of the crowned with glory and honor language from verse 7. We did this several weeks ago. It's used there. It's a reference back to Psalm 8. Is that mankind is crowned with glory and honor. There will be a future time in which that will be made complete and final. This is the bringing many sons to glory. This is called the doctrine of glorification. Glorification. It's, it's talked about many other places in the New Testament. Glorification is the final, ultimate realization 
of salvation. It's when we, as Christians, finally receive our inheritance. Well, it's made certain for us, you and I don't yet retain what is going to be granted to us ultimately in glorification. Let me show you a couple passages in the New Testament that talk about this glorification. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, there's that word again, glorified. He glorified. Who did he glorify? He glorified those whom he justified. That's believers. All whom are justified will be glorified. This is the beauty of this glorification. In fact, it is so certain in the mind of Paul in Romans 8. He talks of it as a past tense thing, just like he does salvation oftentimes. Salvation is yours. Even though you're going to finally receive the full benefits of it later, it's already yours. Your glorification is secured in Christ as he has been glorified. You will receive that glorification. That's how it can be talked about in the past tense. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2, gives this really beautiful imagery of this same glorification. Look at, look at how it says it here. This is Paul again. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, now real quick in the context and the flow here, the tent is referring to our physical body. That if the tent that is our earthly home, you and I, our soul lives in this earthly home, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And how about this truth? For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. I'm not even that old yet. And I can say with confidence in this tent, we groan every time I step on a Lego, which happens very frequently in the Sanford home, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. This is so rich and deep. The tent that is our earthly home, look at that tent home language. This temporal something will be replaced with a building, a permanent something, building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. That's glorification. This is one of the things that will happen in glory for us. As we are brought to glory ultimately and finally, we will receive resurrection bodies. We will not have this tent that can wear and die and get old and weak. We will get, get a new body. We will be brought to glory as we, using other Hebrews language, as we inherit salvation. As it said in chapter 1, verse 14. And as we have dominion over the world to come, as it says in chapter 2, verse 5. This is the kind of language that's already been used. That's the bringing many sons to glory. And notice this, not a select few that will enjoy this glory. This is many, many sons to glory. Lots of people. The Apostle John, as he writes about revelation, he receives a revelation about what is going to happen in the final days of history. And he gets a glimpse of the future in a final ultimate time. And he refers to the people who are worshiping, honoring, and praising God for an eternity as a multitude no one can number from all the tribes, nations, languages. Many sons to glory. He continues on. That should make the foundation, the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. 
For it was fitting that he, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in in bringing many sons to glory, in doing that, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. First, we notice Jesus is the founder. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Another good equivalent word, to try to use that Greek word, what's another good word for that in English? Might be champion. He's the champion of our salvation. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that word is used for champion, the champion, the hero of a nation fight in battles, oftentimes. In fact, the King James Version of the Bible uses the word captain, the captain of our salvation. Now, you might be asking the question, wasn't Jesus already perfect? Like, how could Jesus be made perfect? How could the founder of our salvation be made perfect through suffering. It's important to see that the way that the author of Hebrews uses this word perfect is not sinless here. Jesus was already sinless. He was sinless before he went to the cross. He was sinless before he suffered in that way. In fact, Hebrews is one of the places that we would go to see this stated most clearly. If someone were to ask, how do we know that Jesus was sinless? If I were just to give him one verse, I'd probably go to several of the places in Hebrews, namely places like Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is the sinless one. He has no need to make progress in moral growth. So what then was the point of the suffering? How are we to see this perfect language, being made perfect through suffering language? It might be helpful to point out that the word Perfect in Greek is teleosai. And it is the same word that's used in the Old Testament Greek for consecrate or ordain. So let me show you just just one place in Exodus 29 that might be really helpful for us in the case that's being made by our Hebrews author here. In Exodus 29 verse 9, this is talking about when God set apart of the tribe of Levi, the particular family of Aaron, Remember, Aaron was Moses' brother. And as God is preparing this nation, he, he decides to ordain one particular family group as the dedicated priests, those in religious service, the sons of Aaron and those down his line. And this is the, the, the chapter that tells us about how they were to be set apart, how they were to be ordained, consecrated. It says in verse 9, And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall, tell Eosai, ordain Aaron and his sons, the Greek version of the Old Testament would say. It's that same word. There are many places that apply this word to the taking of one man among his brothers, namely of the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron, and setting him apart for religious service. And one more thing in our Hebrews passage today that might be helpful to note is that the word suffering in Greek here is actually plural. could be said sufferings should make the founder of their salvation perfect, set apart, ordained, consecrated, through sufferings. So God determined that Jesus would be made suitable for, set apart for, ordained, 
consecrated for his task of being our great high priest. How? By the trials and sufferings of his earthly life that climax in his death. Verse 9 pointed to the suffering of his death, right? The suffering of death is what was most pointed to there. But this plural sufferings kind of language is probably referring to the, all the kinds of sufferings. Perhaps much like it says later in verse 18 I read earlier that says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. It's not a one-time temptation. Jesus will help you that one lifeline call you get. This is the all of those sufferings because all the many times he was tempted He survived intact, pure, blameless, and sinless. God was not surprised by Jesus' suffering. It was the plan all along. In fact, it could not have worked any other way. This is why repeatedly throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he kept telling his disciples, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to have to be mocked and spit on. and I'm going to have to stand before the religious leaders. And I'm going to have to be turned over to the authorities. And I'm going to have to be killed. It's going to have to happen. And they didn't get it. They went, what? You, wait, you what? They didn't understand. And he kept telling them, because this is the plan. I wonder if you've ever wondered, as I have, why it is during Jesus' life and ministry That so many times he told his disciples and the people that he healed and was teaching, he told them to not tell anyone. You know what I'm talking about? Let me give you a few examples for those of you who might might not remember this or might not be aware of this. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus was healing two blind men. There's dozens of these examples. I'm just going to give you a few right here. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them. He heals these blind men. And what does he say to them? See that no one knows about it. Luke 8, 56. Jesus had just been asked by Jairus, the synagogue ruler. This man comes running up to Jesus when he's he's teaching and he's healing. Please come, my my daughter is sick, my daughter is sick. And Jesus, on his way, goes with the man. And when he gets there, they say the girl is dead. His 12-year-old daughter is dead. And Jesus goes inside and he raises this girl back up to new life. Like, what more do you need to prove this man is who he said that he was? He's worthy of worship. And it says this, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. What did that look like? Did they walk out? Sorry, we were mistaken. She was just joking. Like, I don't know what they said, Why would Jesus do this? Don't, he charged them. Don't tell them. Mark 7. Jesus charged them to tell no one. Again, healing more people. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So people who were healed couldn't keep shut their mouths. Matthew 17, you know know many of these places, don't you? If you've ever read through the New Testament, you might know the times that Jesus was being... uh, proclaimed by demons. Who are you? Why are you coming, son of David? And he he charged them to keep their mouths shut because it was not yet his time for who he was to truly be known to everyone in that way. And Matthew 17, 9, Jesus gets transfigured. That means literally a revealing of his glory. It was kind of like a a, a pulling back of the, the, the humanity of Jesus to reveal his divinity. 
And just his closest disciples got a chance to see it. And he, and he tells them as they experienced this, he says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Then tell everyone. That's why you and I know. Tell everyone, but only after what? After his death and his resurrection. Why? You've ever wondered, why would Jesus keep saying this? Because there is no gospel to proclaim apart from the death of Jesus. There is no gospel apart from his death. If Jesus was not crucified, you and I could not go to heaven. There'd be nothing for the disciples to go and proclaim. In fact, when he sent them out prior to his death and resurrection, it was to prepare them for his death and resurrection. That is how many sons can be brought to glory. Not many sons get brought to glory unless he dies. A gospel without the death of Jesus is no gospel. It is not good news. Beware the false gospel that promises prosperity in this life. And it forsakes the reality of our present suffering. You know, all around the world right now, one of the fastest growing movements that we can count, that we can calculate, is that of the prosperity gospel movement that is going into places where people are Poor, typically. Sick, commonly. And people are proclaiming a gospel that if you believe in Jesus, your money woes and your health woes will go away. And the poorest and the weakest of all of us are the most susceptible to that lie. And it is running rampant throughout the world. You remember the healings, the signs and the wonders? We talked about this a few weeks ago if you were here back in chapter two, verse four. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. What were those healings and signs and wonders for? To authenticate the gospel message. They are not the gospel. They serve to prove that the messenger is from God. Jesus' death in your place and in mine on the cross, that's the good news. That's the gospel. It's a gospel of suffering, of death. I actually think this is why Jesus died so young. You ever wondered that? I'm not a very old guy. I said that already. I'm older now than Jesus was when he walked on this earth. Interesting. He's probably about 33-ish years old. Moses had a ministry 120 years. Or at least he was that old. He had at least 40 years meeting the people. Like, why? Why did Jesus die so young? The goal of Jesus' ministry was not to maximize the number of people being healed. 
but to sufficiently display his God-authentic works and life on his way to the cross. The point was to get to the cross. People didn't have to stop. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, wait. There's more people to be healed. Don't, don't die yet. For our sin, we deserve death, you and I. That's our big problem. Our big problem is not our temporal sufferings today, but our eternal suffering that comes for those who have loved anything other than God more than him. And that is all of us. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory. We don't deserve glorification. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve death, damnation, eternal punishment because we have loved other things more than God. But Jesus died on our behalf to bring many sons to glory. People have been misunderstanding this for thousands of years. It is nothing new that people might not get. Why, why, why do they have to die? How many people do you know in your life who, in one conversation or another, have revealed that they kind of like the basic idea of this Jesus guy, as long as you leave out certain of his teachings and that whole thing about his death and resurrection. There's nothing good about this guy if he was not the son of God who died on behalf of all of those who would ever believe. People have been misunderstanding this for thousands of years, and they didn't even understand it when it was happening. In the moments of Jesus' death, they still didn't get it. When they looked on the cross and saw him bleeding and dying and breathing his last, you know, you know what the Bible says? That the priests and the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious Jews, the most wise and learned Jews in the crowd, do you know what they were saying to Jesus when he was on the cross? He saved others. He could not save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. What good would that do? Belief in an uncrucified Savior saves no one. Jesus stayed on the cross to save everyone who believes on him alone for salvation. Without the cross, we would all be doomed. This is why we sing those songs. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The good news of our gospel is not the temporal relief of struggles and suffering, but of an eternal felicity, to use historic languages, eternal joy, eternal happiness, the being brought to glory. For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is the one who sanctifies. He's the one who does the sanctifying work in, in his first. This is him. John 17, 19. Let me show you another place here. John 17, 19. Jesus says this. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. In fact, some of your translations probably here say sanctified so and for their sake i sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified 
in truth. The same kind of idea in both of those words being used here. Quick note, you'll notice here, you might have picked up on this, you'll notice here, as with many other places in the New Testament, that the members of the Trinity are often individually attributed with responsibility for the same activity. You'll notice this. If someone were to give you a pot quiz and say, who raised Jesus from the dead? You could say the Father, and that'd be true. We have verses. You could say the Spirit, that'd be true. You could say Jesus raised himself. He said that too. Who lives out your Christian life? Who empowers you to do that? Is it the Father? Is it the Son? Or is it the Spirit? Yes. Who created all that exists? The Father, Son, and the Spirit? Yeah, you, you get where I'm going? All over the New Testament it does this. In fact, oftentimes, this is a beautiful thing for us to see. It's actually, I think, it's helpful for us. These statements serve to remind us that the members of the Trinity are working in full unity and cooperation, and so much so that the Father, Son, and Spirit can often be used interchangeably and the statement still be true. Sometimes an author is making a particular point of one or the other, but, but you can see... In our verse here, that Jesus, as the one who has been ultimately consecrated or sanctified, we are then sanctified by him. That's why Hebrews 10.10, later, we'll get there a while from now. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We, We will be sanctified through the offering of Jesus. See that? So back to the verse again. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Some of your your translations might say all from one or all are of one. That language is, is, is sometimes used there to try to identify what the Greek is saying. But the idea is the same. The Father is the source in this verse. He who sanctifies is Jesus. Those who are sanctified, that's us, that's believers in Jesus, all have one source, the same source. Jesus is the one who is ultimately sanctified by God the Father, as it said in the previous verse, remember? Made perfect through suffering, consecrated, set apart. And we, by extension, are likewise sanctified in Jesus. So in this way, the source of our sanctification is the same person, God the Father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Chapter 1, as I said about a hundred times as we walked through that, the purpose of chapter 1 is to show that the Messiah is greater than the angels. Chapter 2 serves to show the fundamental identification of that Messiah, Son, who's greater than the angels, with us, those whom we came to save. So all chapter 2 is making the case that, that this Jesus, this Messiah, that the Old Testament said is greater than the angels, identifies in every possible way with us. In every respect, it'll say. In a couple weeks, we'll talk about that. He really did become one of us. I think I was explaining to you guys not long ago, I've been reading Revelation with my kids, and they ask really, really great questions. Bethany and Gabe, my oldest two kids, I've been reading it out loud with them at night, and they just have so many very interesting questions that I never would have thought about. And they asked a question recently that they've asked previously. That's just awesome that their little minds think this way. 
I told them the vision that John had about how, in chapter 5 of Revelation, the lamb who was slain walks forward to open the scroll. It's one of the visions in Revelation. I forget which kid asked it, but they said, if the lamb being slain in the Old Testament was that picture of the washing away of sin for us, the atoning for sin, then why didn't God just send a perfect lamb again that wasn't a human, but just a lamb? You get the question? Like, why did he have to be a man? Why not just a really big, good lamb? If he was still fully divine, he'd still be greater in value than all of us combined, right? Why not just a lamb? Like, wouldn't the picture have been clearer if it was just a sheep? It's a really good question. But the answer is right here. This is the answer. The answer is that he needed to be able to call us brothers, not just fellow creatures, but to be one of us that he might be a great high priest. No sheep in the Old Testament was ever given the authority to be a high priest. But a man was, a fellow brother. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He actually became one of us, not just another kind of creature, not just another creature like an angel floating down and dealing with issues and going like, he became one of us to be one of us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not, there's nothing fake going on when he says that to us. It actually can be said. This once again shows that the author is not concocting his own ideas because he goes on here to give three more Old Testament citations to prove the point that the Messiah had to become a brother of the people. And remember, just like in the first chapter, he goes, listen, don't just trust me. Look, the scriptures say he'll be greater than the angels. Here he's going, look, the scriptures say he's going to be made a brother. Look at at what he continues on. These are the three citations he makes. I will tell you, saying, I will tell you of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's one citation. And again, I will put my trust in him. Second one. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Third one. These are cited from Psalm 22, Psalm 18, and Isaiah 8, respectively. And they serve to show the full identification of the Messiah with his people in the following ways. If you read through these, why why these three? Because you notice they don't all say brother. Only one of them says brothers, right? So why why the other ones? What in the world does I will put my trust in him have to do with brothers? Right? That's the argument he's making. Listen, this is why. This is what he's doing here. He's showing the full identification of the Messiah with his people in the following ways. Number one, the Messiah joins the congregation of worshipers as a brother. Number two, he sings the praises of God with the congregation. Number three, he puts his trust in the Father along with the people. Number four, he has been given these children by the Father. The Hebrews that lived during the first generation of the Christian church were very concerned that this new Christian movement was leading Jewish people away from worshiping Yahweh, their God. They were afraid that it was undoing the Jewish religion. You can see this in places like 
Stephen's defense before the Jewish council in Acts chapter 7. You ever read through that? They grabbed this guy, Stephen, who was early servant in the church and made a leadership position. And he's doing these works and miracles in front of people, and they bring him before the, the ruling council, and they challenge him. And you know what he does for like almost an entire chapter in the book of Acts? Is he just retells the Old Testament story. And he actually retells details that only a Hebrew would know. Stuff that's not even actually in the Old Testament for us, but that the Hebrews of that day remembered as just tellings of their history. And he knew them well. And he, he, he built on all of them. He goes, all of that is true. That's the way it was. And he used that to point to the righteous one that they killed. The point is, the author of Hebrews, like Stephen there, is concerned about the same concern that these first century Hebrews would be. We're not telling you to worship a new God. We're not telling you to forsake the worship of the one true God. We want you to really know the one true God. And he actually did send his Messiah just like he promised. The Old Testament is our, yours and mine, if you were a brother and sister in Christ, it is our family history. We are true Israelites. Those today who have Jewish blood in their veins and yet reject their Messiah are not true Israel. You and I today worship the very same God that the Jews of the Old Testament worshiped. And listen carefully, you and I worship the same God that Jesus worshiped. This is why it's quoted of Jesus. I will tell you, tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I will put my trust in him. You and I today worship the very same God that Jesus worshiped. Today we join together to sing praises to God. Literally today, today. Like you and I today, just a few minutes before I came up here, we were singing praises to God. Did you know that Jesus sung hymns and praises to God? You and I live our lives trusting in God. So did Jesus. We are the children that have been given to Jesus by the Father. And because of all this, Jesus is not ashamed to call you and I his brothers. We live in a Mormon context where Mormonism teaches that Jesus is our literal brother. But that teaching robs verses like this of their beauty and majesty. Look, I have three earthly brothers, same, DNA, same genetic you know, pool. Mike, John, and Jeff. And there's Richie, me. For me to be called brother with them is no great thing. Yeah. So, but for Jesus to be called our brother is huge. If I could do one thing for the people of Utah, if I could devote the rest of my life to one thing, it would be to proclaim the greatness of God before the lost people of Utah. He is so much bigger. He is so much better. He is so far beyond the view of all of our neighbors. In the gospel, we offer a trade. A trade for the God of this universe for all the other stuff. Do you get discouraged looking at the brokenness of the world, watch news and see these things and get downhearted? Don't. 
I do too. But we ought not. Instead, we should let those things point us to the reality. You can either have the world and all its brokenness, or you can have God. All the things that we see, the tear down, that destroy, the death, the devastation, the sickness, the illness, the hatred, all of that should remind us there are two that exist. There is creator and creation. And we get one, and we can have it for forever. We either get creator forever, worshiping and praising God for eternity. We get that or what he made apart from him. You know, there's an argument by many people you may have heard. People challenge, why would God send people he's made to hell? God will give you what you want the most. It's what you get. You, everyone gets what they want most. Nobody goes to hell if they want God more. Nobody does. Nobody. Every soul in hell wants that more than God. How is that not just? Of course it is. If you trade the God of the universe for anything else, you will get anything else. That's why Romans 1, one of the worst judgments that can happen on humanity, even in this life, is that God will turn you over to your sin, give you exactly what you want. You want to worship the idols? There comes a breaking point at which God says, you can have them. Let them save you. We cry loudly, open your eyes, look around you. You can either have this or you can have God. Do not let the world distract you in this. I don't feel compelled. I want to close right now just by thinking, I want all the teenagers, young people. You right now are likely going to be under a particular kind of targeting from the world. That you can have that. And they'll polish it up. It'll appeal to you. You know why it'll appeal to you? Because you, just like all of us, are sinners at heart. And, and, and when we look at the, the fruit from the tree, like, like Eve, right? We look at it. Doesn't it look appealing to the eyes? Doesn't it look pleasing to the flesh? Yes, it does. And you want to know the truth? It will, it will give you momentary satisfaction, whatever that lie of the world is. It will. But you can have that or you can have something so much better. This is why it is the call of Christians throughout the ages to point to something bigger and point to something better. It's oftentimes why those who are in the most hurting places, those who are the most crushed, are the most open to receiving the gospel. Because they go, I've been trying this and look! Look what I've got! I've got busted, broken, bloody, tear-filled world that's all that it will produce. And for the record, before you die, that's the best it can offer to you. Don't let the world distract you in this. We have been given the Son of God who is not ashamed to call us brothers, to identify us 
identify with us in all the suffering. Next week, we're going to talk about how does he identify with us in the suffering, and how is that as an encouragement day by day. But for today, what what I want to center us on as we, we close and conclude, don't let your eyes drift from the prize. Don't think for a moment that there's anything other than the creator, God himself, that will satisfy, ultimately or even today. This is why we can have joy in suffering. Because to suffer with God is better than to have riches and pleasures apart from him. We sing Psalm 16 as a song from the psalm earlier today. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We want God and all the good that he has to offer us. Let's pray. Father, as we pray and close this particular morning, I am ho personally, experientially, well aware of the appeal of the things that are not of you. I'm well aware of this appeal. Lord, I pray that you would break our focus off of those things, that you would show us the temporal nature of this world, that you would show us that anything apart from you will never satisfy. Father, help us to be willing to give up even the things in this life that look and feel and seem good to us. Lord, let us not follow anybody into error. Lord, let us be willing to forsake lands, our home, family, riches, our jobs, our health, any prosperity. Let us give all of it up. Let us be willing, Lord, put it on our open hands, never to, never to close our fingers around that we would grasp, seize hold of these things as though if we didn't, we would lose. Lord, let us follow the the example of even the Apostle Paul as he he opened his his fingers, opened his hands and considered this life and all of its riches as rubbish compared to you. Father, I pray that you would do a supernatural work, that if there are people here today who, who... this doesn't seem like it makes sense. It seems like just folly. Why would, I, why would I give up pleasures of this world for the next 10, 20, 50 more years of my life? Why would I give up 50 plus years of earthly pleasure for the hope of something that happens after I die? Lord, please awaken the soul. Please regenerate the heart. Make a person new. Open eyes that they may see you as the only lasting, eternal joy that there can be. Father, teach us to love you, worship you, praise you, consider you greater, higher, more than anything else that there is. Lord, give us the right view of Jesus as greater than the angels, creator of the worlds, and yet one who identifies with us as brother, who came down to become one of us, that he might be a great high priest for us, that through belief in him, we can have eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.